Blog Talk Radio. There is a watchman on the wall, bringing forth the written word of God to one and all. Are you getting ready? Will you stand or will you fall? Listen to the watchman on the wall. Listen to the watchman on the Rise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A new day has dawned. All over the earth, men and women are arising. It's time for the sons of God to awake. It is a day of justice, recompense, Restoration, revival, and resurrection power. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Vincent Xavier, pastor of New Wine Ministries. Great to be with you on this Friday. We're only going to have a few moments together today, and we're going to turn things over to a radio broadcast, an interview I did with Carl Gallups about a year and a half ago. We were talking about some very interesting things, and I believe it'll be very enlightening to where we are today. I wanted to remind you that today is the 40th day of the counting of the Omer. So since Passover, 40 days ago, we have been in a season of 40 days. Now, you remember that when Jesus had risen from the dead, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 that he was on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection, speaking to his disciples about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We have just been through a 40-day window a period of time, and not everybody counts the Omer, okay, but it is very specific and it should be of great interest to a lot of us who understand the Feast of the Lord that this last 40 days um, has been a time when Yeshua was there, and then by this day he would have ascended and he would have been taken out of view by that cloud of witnesses, and he would have ascended to the right hand of God receiving the title deed of his kingdom, and his throne. You find that in Daniel chapter 7. So this is the day, if we're celebrating and looking back and remembering, that Jesus, after 40 days in his glorified body, he was coming and going all over the world for 40 days. Who knows who he was talking to in those days, whether he was in America talking to the Indians or wherever he was. He was in an omnipresent body, 
and he was able to come and go as he willed, but for 40 days he was on the earth speaking. That's been the last 40 days, and now as we enter in this evening when the sun sets, the final 10-day countdown to the great feast of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so I wanted to just remind you about that, that this is something you can tap into and become a part of, and that's a really good thing. Also wanted to remind you of our upcoming trip to South Dakota, and that'll be from May 21st to May 23rd, and we will be out there. But um, having said all of that, what I'm going to do is turn this over right now to an interview with Carl Gallups. So be blessed. Here it goes. Have a blessed weekend. We'll see you Tuesday. Blog Talk Radio. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A new day has dawned. All over the earth, men and women are arising. It's time for the sons of God to awake. It is a day of justice, recompense, Restoration, revival, and resurrection power. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Vincent Xavier, pastor of New Wine Ministries. Good to be with everyone today. I trust you're all doing very well. We have a, an amazing moment before us today. One of God's favorite warriors, Pastor Carl Gallops, is going to be joining me on the air in just one moment. He's the author of a book called Gods of Ground Zero. We are living in the days of wartime, and without further delay, I'd like to bring into the broadcast booth Pastor Carl Gallops. Good morning, sir. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful, Pastor Vincent. Thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be with you. Well, it is wonderful to be with you. And Pastor Carl, I, I want to just say right up front, I've been watching a little bit about uh, what's been going on in your life. You've been hitting some real headliners, getting the attraction of a lot of people around the world and... Um, Obviously, some warfare. The latest I heard is that you were attacked by a whole host of witches. And I know that doing the work in the last days as effectively as you're doing it would draw a tremendous amount of conflict. And I could imagine that some of the afflictions that perhaps you or your family have had to undergo have been pretty tough. But God sustains you, and the body of Christ will continue to pray for you so that the revelation can continue to go forth. So, I hope you're doing great. I trust you are. You serve an amazing Lord. Let's get into the interview. You have written a book called Gods of Ground Zero. Tell us all about it. Okay, well, thanks. You want me to tell you all about it? Because <laughs> I can speak on this for hours. <laughs> Would love oh, it. Goodness. Would love no, it. I'll give you a review. 
Vincent, Pastor Vincent? Yes, yes, sir. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We have a little bit of a delay. I'm so sorry. No, I know. I was just joking with you. You want me to uh, to give a, a, a brief overview, correct? Sure. I mean, it just as as you're led to do, I I know that you yeah. could hit seven to fifteen topics easy. So, um, yeah. but again, just go for it. Okay, okay, good, and thanks. You're so gracious. You're a gracious host, but, of course, it's your show, and I'm not telling you how to do it, but please, I'm just going to start talking and teaching, but in the meantime, I mean, if you have questions, comments, et cetera, just jump in, okay? Yes, sir. Okay, good deal. Thank you so much, yeah. Well, first of all, the book is titled Gods of Ground Zero. Now, the book that came just before this, a year before this, uh, is called Gods and Thrones. So Gods of Ground Zero is kind of a sequel to that, but what I mean by kind of is that you don't have to read them in order. They both stand alone, but if your audience is interested in these topics, and I, and I think they will because it covers the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, concerning deep theological matters made very simple, uh, but if they will read both of them, then they will have this insight into the Word of God and into their own lives, and to what is happening in the headline news right now, and how it all ties back to the very beginning, specifically the Garden of Eden. Uh, but my latest book, as you said, is Gods of Ground Zero. Now, let me explain the title first. First of all, the word gods, uh, most of your audience knows this, and um, I believe you had me on your show when we did Gods and Thrones, but gods, it comes from the Hebrew word Elohim. That word can be either plural or singular, depending upon how it's used. It's the same way with our word deer or buffalo. Both of those can be are used either singular or plural, and the only way we know which way they're used is the you know the verbs associated or the sounding or the qualifying words around it. The word Elohim is interesting because it's the first name we hear for God in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's a whole teaching as to why that would be the first word, and I don't want to go into that. But I'm just saying, there's the singular use. Whenever it's used in the singular form, it's always speaking of God, our creator. However, God says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that he has, quote, given his name, by which, every, by which every family in heaven and on earth derive its name from the one Father. And, um, uh, and, 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 and that's in Ephesians 3, John chapter 1. And to those who believed upon him, to them he gave the right to be called, in the English version says, the sons of God. Well, in Hebrew, that says, B'nai Elohim. B'nai means sons or children of. Elohim is God. So, so all of God's intelligent creation, which would be the angelic realm and the human realm, are also called Elohim. But in the human realm, the only ones that are really called B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, the true sons of God, are those who are believers in Jesus Christ. In the angelic realm, the Elohim refer to the, the obedient angelic realm, the divine counsel of God. But they can also refer to the fallen ones, uh, the gods, uh, the very first commandment we have in the Bible. Thou shalt have no other Elohim before thee. Okay? So there it is again. Thou shalt have no other gods. And so that term Elohim in the Bible is translated as either God, capital G, if it's used singular, for God himself, 
or the gods, little g, with an S, plural, to mean the angelic realm and or the demonic realm. So with that in mind, when I say gods of ground zero, that's what I'm referring to. It refers to the whole spiritual cosmic battle that we are in, which includes Satan lashing out against God, God planning the plan of the ages, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, um, the angelic realm, the obedient angelic realm, and then the realm that Paul warns us of in Ephesians chapter 6, our battles not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of wickedness in dark and heavenly places. So that term gods refers to all of that, and in, a, in the biblical contextual sense, it also refers to those of us who are under the blood of Jesus, who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ when our divine nature, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, is restored. And that divine nature doesn't mean we become like God. It just means we're called the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, the obedient sons of God. So <clears throat> God's of ground zero refers to this cosmic battle for ground zero. Now, what's ground zero? Well, I make the point in the book, of course, when we think about ground zero, we think of 9-11, September 11th, New York City, etc. But, but, but the deal is the term ground zero just means an unprecedented occurrence, an unprecedented place. Something happens there that never happened before. Well, 9-11 in New York City is called Ground Zero because it was the largest mainland terrorist attack in U.S. history on American soil. But it also happens to be the largest terrorist attack in the history of the planet against a singular nation. So the term Ground Zero certainly aptly applies. Now, I don't mention uh, New York or 9-11 at all in my book. That's not what this term means, because I make the biblical case and the historical case backed up. Everything that I'm going to say to your audience, some of it is going to be shocking because they've never thought of it before. They didn't know the Bible said these things. I can assure your audience I have not pulled this stuff out of my back pocket. I'm not making it up. Everything that I say or that I'm getting ready to say is in my book. It's backed up and referenced by dozens of scholars, renowned scholars, Hebrew word studies, Greek word studies. But I want your audience to know as I say that, they're thinking, oh, my gosh, this sounds like some theology textbook at a doctor's degree level out of a seminary. No, the subject matter is, is deep and mysterious. It all comes from the scriptures. But I make it very simple. So anybody sitting in a pew that will read this book can understand it. But also it's written for the scholars because everything I have is referenced so that they can go check it out. Again, I'm not making this stuff up. So I make the point in my book. <clears throat> this is a major point. It connects two huge things that makes complete sense of the Bible and makes complete sense of the world we live in. That is, the first ground zero, the ground zero of the cosmos was the Garden of Eden. That was the first place where the first lie was told, where the first false prophecy was given. God didn't say that. Surely God didn't say that. God didn't mean that. You shall not die. You, you could be like gods. See, there it is again. You could be like the Elohim. If you could be like us, or some translations have it, you could be like God. And the reason it goes from God to gods in the various translations, because the word is Elohim. You could be like Elohim, and there are no other 
um, uh, qualifying words, so we don't know did Satan mean you could be like God himself or that you could be like the angels of whom you were made just a little lower than the Bible says. But the point is it's, it's one and the same. In other words, you can be like us. You can be like the divine realm. You can be like God or his angels if you would just do what I say, Satan said. So all of that happened in the garden. That was the first terrorist attack. That was the first first in, in injection of death and destruction it was the fall it was the it was the it was ground zero it's where the airplanes were flown into the creation if you will and and everything fell the creation as and humanity the soul of man everything fell also it's the place where the first true prophecy was given when god himself says it's to Satan when he's giving his judgment upon Adam and Eve and, and the serpent. We'll talk about that. That's a metaphorical term for Satan himself. The Bible says that. It wasn't a walking, talking snake that Satan somehow had mesmerized or, was, or had possessed. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible tells us it was Satan, and the term serpent is a metaphor used all the way through the Bible and even into the book of Revelation. So we're told what it is. But the bottom line is God says to Satan in the Garden of Eden, out of the womb of a woman, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's there, Genesis 3.15, out of the womb of a woman will come a seed, singular, and he, singular, will crush your head. He, you, will bruise his, singular, heel, but he will crush your head. So not only is the first judgment given, but the first true prophecy is given from God himself, and not only that, but it is the first messianic prophecy, the first prophecy of the coming Messiah. It's the fountainhead of all prophecy is built around what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, having said that, your audience knows all of those things. They might not have thought about those things in a long time, but your audience, the ones that know the Word of God and read the Bible, they, they know everything that I just said. Here's what they might not have thought about or might not have even really known. The Garden of Eden is the reason for the rest of the Bible, and the Bible says that. What happened in the Garden of Eden is the reason why Jesus had to go to Calvary's cross, and the Bible says that. It's the reason for the resurrection. It's the reason Jesus was on the face of the earth after the resurrection for his time, 40 days. I explain all this in my book. There's a reason why he walked the face of the earth for 40 days, and the New Testament tells it to us. It's there but most Christians and most pastors and preachers have never connected the dots. But once you see it, you go, oh, my gosh, it's all connected to the Garden of Eden. Everything in the Bible is connected to the Garden of Eden, all the way through to the last two books of the Bible. I mean, excuse me, the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, it speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, and it's called the New Jerusalem. And then when you get to chapter 22, most English translations have as the subtitle of the section. Now, this, these words are not written in the Bible, but, but Bible scholars and Bible translators see it so profoundly that they put this as the subtitle. They call chapter 22, the subtitle is, The Restoration of the Garden of Eden. And then it talks about, and I saw the throne of God and of the Lamb and the river of life that, flew, that flowed from the throne of God and the tree of life was there. And it goes on describing this restitution of the Garden of Eden. Now, 
That's what this book is about, the gods of ground zero. There's a cosmic battle. There always has been. There always will be for who uh, Satan thinks he is the prince of this world. He is the king of this world. He will eventually reveal himself in the person of the Antichrist in the very, very last days. That's when God will say, okay, it's time. I've had enough. I knew this was coming. This is it. And then the wrath of God will be poured out. The eventual end of all things on earth will culminate in the New Jerusalem. That's interesting because the Garden of Eden is directly connected in the scriptures and in history and in archaeology, even though the secular archaeologists try to cover it up. It's the Garden of Eden is all connected to Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem. The whole story of the Bible connects Jerusalem with the Garden of Eden. The very last words of the Bible, the new Jerusalem, where the tree of life is, where the river of life is, where God fellowships with man, where God will restore the fellowship with man. God will live with them. He will, they will be with him. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. The old order of things has passed away. In other words, Peter says our divine nature will be restored. We will be with God. We will be called the sons of God. We will judge the angels. We will judge the nations. We will rule and reign with Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation says. So, Again, by the time you connect all these dots I've just done, I'm going to hush for a minute let you interject, and otherwise I'll keep going because there's a lot more I can unpack here. But the whole bottom line is this brings a whole new light, not, not a new interpretation of the Scriptures. As I said, the, the classical scholars I, – I quote about two dozen classical scholars all through, my bio, uh, all through my book. Why do I quote classical scholars so much, you know, the ones from 100 years ago, 150, 200 years ago? I go all the way back to the ancient Jewish scholars, and I quote modern scholars. I quote modern language experts, but I quote a lot of classical scholars. Why do I do that? It's because I'm trying to show the church that scholars, renowned scholars, have seen the things that I'm talking about in this book, the dots that I'm connecting. Scholars have seen it for hundreds of years, even thousands of years. But somehow, all of this stuff, the Garden of Eden, Noah's Flood, I mean, it's all been turned into children's bedtime stories, Pastor Vincent. Little coloring book things. You know, a snake wrapped around a tree offering an apple to Eve. Well, the Bible doesn't say any of that in its proper interpretation. It doesn't say any of that. But we've turned it into these things. Satan is behind it. He's trying to cover up the devastating consequences of ground zero, the Garden of Eden, what his end is, how it's going to come about, and what it all means to our life right now. And the fact that it's all connected to Jerusalem, that's the whole reason why Jesus spent the last week of his life in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, why he was crucified there, why he was resurrected there, why he ascended from there, and why he's coming back to rule and reign on the face of the earth, where his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. It says that in the New Testament. It says that in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah. So... Anyway, I'm going to hush for a moment, but that's the overview. Gods of Ground Zero, the Elohim of the Garden of Eden, all the way connecting to what's happening in our world now. The restitution of the Garden of Eden, the book of Revelation, tells us that's where we're headed. That's what it's all about. That's what the whole Word of God is about. It's about restoring what Satan took from God. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. God, Jesus said, but I have come ultimately to bring you life and to give it to you 
everlasting. And that comes at the restitution of all things. That's what the book does. It connects it all together. And when it does, that makes more sense about why the hatred for Israel, why the hatred for Jerusalem being restored to Israel just a few months ago as the rightful capital of Israel, why the Muslim nations, the OIC, 57 of them met six days later to make a plan for attacking Jerusalem. This was in the media. I've got it quoted in my book. I've got it referenced in my book. Why the United Nations met just a few days after the edict and the and 120-something nations con it. Why the nations of the world hate Israel? Why? Because Satan is behind the thrones of most of the nations of the world. That was my book, Gods and Thrones. That's his domain, power, thrones. And it's not just political thrones. It's ecclesiastical thrones. It's thrones of education, thrones of government, thrones of churches and, and denominations. It's, it's from the city councils of towns all over the world all the way into the halls of the United Nations and everything that that represents. These thrones of the earth are controlled by and large by Satan. The Bible says that. Jesus says that. So that's, that's what life is about. That's what's happening before our eyes. That's what the Apostle Paul tried to warn us when he said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. You've got to get this in your head. It's about the restitution of the Garden of Eden. I'm going to stop there. Now, I've got some more shocking things to share with your audience, but I want to stop and breathe and give you a chance to interject, ask questions, agree or disagree, brother. All right. Well, absolutely, number one, I'm marveling because I have just recently done a Bible study in our church about the river that went out of Eden to water the garden and how that one river became four heads and how everything begins in the garden, it ends in the garden. And I think what's happening is you have captured the heart of the Father to minister to the people like a river going forth, that Holy Spirit river, to minister and put a thirst back into the heart of God's people for the difficult times that are here, that have been here and will be, but that revelation of what lies before us. Pastor Carl, this, I believe, is the, uh, the moment, and that is so unique to God's Word that when things are spoken in His, uh, his time frame, that's when a word spoken is like pictures of gold and apples of silver, however that one is. So, yes, this is building a thirst. We began in Eden. Everything's going back to Eden. And yet you've just unpacked that the very throne of God, the new Jerusalem, everything is connected to Eden. And that somehow has an interconnection to the people that are part of it, uh, the man and the woman. They were there. So continue yeah. on. We're loving it. We're learning from it. And the only Thank other you. thing I would... Yeah, the only other thing I'd mention is that that Satan that was in the garden, that Lucifer, we find him in the book of Ezekiel many times in, in different forms, whether he's the king of Tyre uh, or the king of uh, uh, Tyrus. Uh, there is an, a spirit of Satan that seems to manifest in these world leaders along the way. Are you going to tap yes. into that at all? Well, Gods and Thrones, my book before this, that's what that whole book was about. You're exactly right. And I do tap into it again in Gods of Ground Zero because Satan is presented in chapter 28 as the guardian cherub. He's also presented in Ezekiel 31 as the tree, the Pharaoh tree, the trees of the Garden of Eden. The Bible says, I mean, it actually says that. You were like a tree in the Garden of Eden. The trees of Eden were the nations of the world. That's what God says. 
I'm not saying it. Ezekiel 31 says it. And the scholars saw it. The Jewish scholars saw it. The Christian scholars saw it. And then he's called the Pharaoh tree. Well, Pharaoh has been a symbol of Satan from the beginning. I mean, in Genesis, Pharaoh is, you know, he is a symbol of Satan. And then you get to Ezekiel, and there it is again. And the nations are called the trees that were in the Garden of Eden. I mean, literally, those words I just said come right out of Ezekiel 31. The scholars have seen it, but they don't teach it in our seminaries, brother. It's not preached from pulpits. People sitting in pews do not understand, a lot of them don't understand the real punch and power of what the Bible is really all about, what life is about, what our destiny is about, what it is that God is doing. You know, we say, well, Jesus sent his son. He died on the cross. Amen. Rose from the dead. Amen. Now we can live together. Now we can live forever in heaven, sit on a cloud and play a harp. Amen. But that's not what it's about. It is ruling and reigning. It's fellowshipping. It's a return to Eden. It's no more death. It's God continuing to rule and reign throughout the universe. Probably, and the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm saying based upon what the Bible does say, probably he's going to keep creating. And and we're going to get to rule and reign with him, probably, and and whatever. And certainly he's going to continue this this earthly Garden of Eden, and we will have a place in it. We will rule and reign over the nations. And I mean, it's that's the Bible does say that. So anyway, let me deal with two topics, and 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 I, one of them will be exactly to the thing that you just said, and then the other one will be connected. Let me tell you what my topics are. Let me deal with the the serpent figure, the Garden of Eden, the metaphors that are used that the Bible says, that God says, that Jesus says, not what Carl Gallup says. All I do is connect the dots. I just take what the Bible says, and then I connect the dots, and then to make sure I've connected them properly, I go to all the classical commentators, and 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 the vast majority of them saw it. They connected the dots. They said, oh, my gosh. Look what God said. Look what Jesus said. Look what the the prophet said. It all connects. So let me deal with the Garden of Eden and what really happened and Satan, who he really was, the serpent. Then after that, let me deal with this word called paradise. That is an amazing revelation that I deal with in my book that's in the New Testament, connects everything that I'm just saying some of it right out of the mouth of Jesus himself. In fact, two uses of the word paradise in the New Testament come out of the mouth of Jesus. So let me start back with the garden. All right, I made the statement in the beginning of our talk here that um, that, that that was not a real walking, talking snake. That's a shock for a lot of people, and it's also shocking to me. I went to a lot of these, uh, a lot of the modern uh, commentary websites, uh, some of them, I'm not going to say them over the air right now. They're all documented in my book. My purpose is not to disparage anyone. I'm very gracious and kind in my book when I do it. But a lot of the modern uh, theological commentary websites that Christians use, and I'm talking about big named, almost all of them subscribe to the fact that this was a, an actual walking, talking snake Talking because he talked to Adam and Eve, walking because the judgment was from now on you will crawl on your belly, which indicated before that he didn't, which indicated he walked. And since he was talking to Adam and Eve, some of these modern uh, websites actually say he stood on his hind legs like a man and looked them in the eye. Now that's a pretty frightful creature right there, brother, but anyway, 
<laughs> anyway, then when you consider that Adam and that Adam named all the creatures, I mean, had he not seen this thing before? And if he hadn't, where did it come from? And if it came out of nowhere and it was a creature he had never seen nor that he had ever named a walking, talking snake, why were they so mesmerized? Why did they believe it? Why did they follow him? No, 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 no. This was not a walking, talking snake. How do I know this? Let me start simply, and then I'll get more uh, biblically detailed. The reason we know it wasn't a walking, talking snake, but it's a metaphor for something much worse why, by the way, most metaphors and parables and symbols do speak to something much worse than the actual symbol. <laughs> but, um, for example, uh, how do we know it wasn't a walking, talking snake? Because after we move, after, after we get through Genesis 3, we never run into a walking, talking snake again anywhere in the Bible. Never. Now, the word serpent is mentioned. Sometimes it's mentioned as a literal snake. And then... Other times it's mentioned symbolically for something connected to the Garden of Eden, but several times there's a definition attached that says, and that actually Satan. It says that in the Bible. In two different places it says that exactly what I just said. I'll get to that in a moment. So how do we know it wasn't a walking, talking snake? Because we never see a walking, talking snake again. Now that's odd since the Garden of Eden was ground zero. Why would God never mention a walking, talking snake again? Why would Jesus never mention a walking, talking snake again? Why would none of the prophets ever mention a walking, talking snake again? They never do. Not only that, show me any place in history or in science where we have discovered walking, talking snakes or remnants thereof. We have not. It's, it's metaphorical, and then down through the ages it became the stuff of mythology. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is mythological, and I'm not saying the Garden of Eden is. I'm just saying it's a metaphor that is later defined throughout the scriptures. Now, let me give some of those definitions. And then I can also address why that metaphor would be there. By the way, the trees and the eating of the fruit, that's metaphors as well. Now, something really happened, but the... The eating of the fruit of trees is metaphorical. How do we know that? Because the Old Testament says it. God himself says it in the Old Testament. Jesus says it about four different places in the New Testament. The whole symbolism of eating fruit from a tree in a garden is found in other places in the Old Testament. And every time it is, it's connected to metaphors, it's obviously metaphorical, metaphorical, and it always has something to do with either sexual perversion or just a lust for something that's before you that you desperately want, and, and so you eat that fruit from that tree. And those are found throughout the scriptures, and I've got all of that documented. I'm telling you, a lot of the reason we don't understand Genesis 3, brother, is because we read Genesis 3, and then we encapsulate it. In other words, we move on from there and say, huh, that's an interesting story. Well, that explains why we're in such a bad shape. It's because of the daggum woman, <laughs> which is what Adam said. But, but that's what we think. And then we turn it into a children's coloring book story, and we move on, not ever realizing that everything that follows is about recapturing the Garden of Eden from Satan and restoring everything right down to the last words of the last book of the last chapter of the Bible. 
but we miss it, and we don't teach it. So anyway, back to the garden. All right, so we move past Genesis 3, and, and I just made some shocking statements. Let me just say, Adam and Eve were real. The Garden of Eden experience was real. The fall was real. Uh, the serpent is a metaphor for Satan. The trees and the fruit, metaphors for uh, uh, pillars of knowledge, if you will, m- maybe even other angelic beings, uh, maybe even Jesus himself, because Jesus, himself, Jesus calls himself the tree of life in the New Testament. He calls himself that. So, so, so something is symbolic about those trees and the fruit. In other words, and they chose, instead of following divine knowledge, from the throne of God, instead of following the person of their creator, who, by the way, was in the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? The New Testament says it. By him and through him, all things were created. Nothing was created that was not made by him. John chapter 1 says that. Hebrews chapter 1 says that. Colossians chapter 1 says that. Revelation says that. So, that's what the, the trees and the fruit, and I, and I explore all of the biblical possibilities, I won't do that on your show today, of exactly what that might have meant according to the Hebrew words and Greek words. But the bottom line is, it's a metaphor. Turning their back on their fellowship with God and choosing to fellowship with, the Bible calls it the serpent, but then we find out later it's Satan. We move to Ezekiel 28. And in Ezekiel 28, there's a description that starts as the king of Tyre. I prove in my book from the scriptures and from the classic commentators all the way back to the ancient Jews and even into the modern Hebrew language experts that that Ezekiel 28 eventually morphs, as do a lot of, of, of um, uh, laments uh, and, uh, and, and, and judgments on the kings, it eventually morphs into an explanation of the spirit that's behind the throne of the king of Tyre. In Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 12, this is what it says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, so I'll skip a few verses. It's not out of context. I'm just trying to save time here. He starts speaking. He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, no human being has ever been that. You were in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't there. Every precious stone adorned you. And then it goes on to talk about your beauty, your settings, your mountings from the day you were created. Okay, so by God's hand, this being that was in the Garden of Eden was created. And then it says, verse 14, I anointed you as the guardian cherub of the, of the garden. I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. That's the divine council. You walked among the fiery stones. That's what Isaiah saw with his vision of the, uh, with the king of glory in, in Isaiah 6. So, so what's God done here? He shifted the conversation, and he's showing the king of Tyre the spirit behind him. And what is it? It's Satan. He goes on to say, so I drove you from the mount of God, which also is the Garden of Eden. I expelled you, O guardian cherub. And then he goes on, so I threw you to the earth. Well, that's Revelation 12. Beware, woe to you, earth, Satan has been thrown down to you, and he is filled with rage, Revelation 12, 12. God says in Ezekiel 28, I threw you to the earth, I made a spectacle of you before the kings. And then it goes on to say, in the end, 
fire will come from you. I reduce you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. The nations who knew you will be appalled, and you will come to a horrible end, and you will be no more. God is telling Satan, he's telling the king of Tyre, you have the spirit of Satan in you. But then he's talking, he's describing the Garden of Eden, and he's telling us what was there. It wasn't a walking, talking snake. It was Satan who was one of the cherubim. And in Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel says the cherubim are also known as the living creatures. Well, by the time we get to Revelation 4 and 5, John sees the living creatures. They surround the throne of God, the four living creatures. They, 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 they are the guardians of the holiness of God. You do not approach the throne of God without first coming through those cherubim. And, and God says, Satan... I created you. You were the most perfect, the most beautiful thing I ever created, and I appointed you as the guardian cherub of the Garden of Eden. That's in Ezekiel 28. Now, so what does guardian mean? It means like the governor. It, in other words, God had created this universe. By the way, God doesn't live in the universe. He is outside of the universe. The Bible says he created the universe and everything in it. By the way, it says he did that in the person of Jesus Christ. <laughs> the New Testament says that. He created the universe. He creates the earth. And in the center of the earth, by the way, Ezekiel 5 says that Jerusalem, I have appointed Jerusalem as the center of the earth, the center of the nations. Why would God appoint Jerusalem? Because it was where the Garden of Eden was. Everything. He focused in on that area. He created it. He makes the garden. He makes humanity. The angelic realm watch. They are in awe, according to Job, the book of Job. The B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, there's that word again, shouted for joy when God did this. But somewhere in Satan's heart, it was becoming blackened because he was filled with jealousy, and he wanted these new creatures that were beautiful to, to behold. He wanted them to worship him. And then once he discovered that out of these creatures, out of a womb of a woman, and out of the seed of the man would come the future nations of the world, he then realized, I could be king over these nations that would come. I could take all of this, but first I have to profane the garden so God will turn his back on it. And what do we find in Isaiah 14? I, it, Satan actually says, I will ascend to the throne of the Most High God. I will be exalted above the gods, above the Elohim. I will rule and reign. I will be the God. I mean, I mean that's what it was all about. And God says in Ezekiel 28, you were appointed as the governor, the guardian. In other words, he was appointed straight from the throne, and God put him over the earthly realm. That's why Jesus calls him now the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. I mean, I, mean uh, I think Paul called him the prince of this world, but Jesus refers to him in that way too. The prince of this world, excuse me, Jesus calls him that. Paul calls him the, the prince of the power of the air. But the bottom line is he's called the prince of this world um, because he was set up as the prince of this world. He's become the evil prince. He's become the thief that steals and kills and destroys. But Ezekiel 28, now look at this. In Ezekiel 28, God is describing Satan, and he says, I put you in the Garden of Eden. Notice what he does not say about Satan. He, there's no mention of a walking, talking snake. In Isaiah 14, there's another description of Satan. No mention of a walking, talking snake. Throughout the Old Testament, you never again hear of a walking, talking snake. Now you move into the New Testament. Now we hear Satan's name called. 
in the temptation, wilderness temptation. Jesus speaks to him, get, 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 be gone, Satan. And, and, I mean, he calls him by his name. You move through the New Testament. Jesus talks about Satan a lot. Uh, the gospel writers talk about Satan a lot. They talk about his connection to the Garden of Eden. Paul does call him the serpent of the garden one time, but he does that in a strictly um, uh, sense of just quoting the scriptures. He says something shocking about it, and then just a few verses later, and he talks about that serpent, and he says, for that is Satan. Even Satan appears as an angel of light. And, I mean, it's in the same, the very same paragraph. So, so then you move on through, and you get to Revelation 12, where John the Revelator says, and that ancient dragon, that ancient serpent, well, how ancient is the serpent? All the way back to the garden. And then comma, and it says, who is the devil or Satan? Revelation 12. By the time you get to Revelation 20, that is repeated again. And that dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, guess what? Revelation 12 says, he has been thrown down to you, earth. That's what Ezekiel 28 said. God says, I will throw you down to the earth. Revelation 20 says, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Ezekiel 28 says, I will reduce you to ashes, and you will be no more. I mean, from, it, I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, everything connects. So I'm here to tell you, brother, I want to get into this paradise scenario before we have to conclude all of this because this is shocking. But I'm here to tell your audience through this book, backed up by scholars, backed up by deep word studies, and I've just scratched the surface with what we talked about today, that the Garden of Eden is everything. The whole Bible is about the restoration. It's ground zero. It's the battle, the cosmic battle of the ages, the gods of ground zero. And it wasn't a walking, talking snake. It wasn't a woman making a mistake and eating a piece of fruit and caused everybody to go to hell and the whole world to fall apart and everybody doomed forever and a sin nature and the destruction and the wrath of God because one woman made one stupid mistake. That's not what it's about. It is about something profane that happened. That word profane is in Hebrew is called chalal, C-H-A-L-A. Uh, A-L, Chalal, and that word is found in Ezekiel 28. He says, you were there, you were on the holy mountain, verse 16, so I drove you out of the garden, in, in the King James it says, as a profane thing, I expelled you, guardian cherub. God calls him Chalal. So you see, what happened in the garden was a direct sticking of the finger of Satan into the eye of God. He did it through God's beautiful creation of Adam and Eve and the garden itself. He profaned it. He dumped garbage on top of it. I do deep studies in my, in my book about what the definition of those words mean. And by the, time, by, the, by the time you get to the New Testament, Paul talks about this profaning of the Garden of Eden, and he uses the same imagery. And Peter, in his writings, talks about the profaning of the Garden of Eden. It's all right there in the Bible. It's right there. We never hear it preached, but it's right there. And he ties it to the same word, chalal, and its ugliness and its nastiness. And we find it throughout the New Testament, even out of the mouth of Jesus himself. 
This is all in my book. I'm going to stop there and let you comment, and then I'm going to talk about the word paradise if we have time, brother. All right, let's do it. Uh, if you're just joining the broadcast, we're on the phone with Pastor Carl Gallups. He's the author of a book, Gods of Ground Zero. What I w- I've got two quick questions, and then we'll turn it over. We've got, we'll have another 15 minutes to get into paradise, and we could have uh, some other interviews down the road to just keep this uh, flowing. Um, number one that I was thinking about is when you look at Isaiah 14, and you, you, you find so many times in Scripture about uh, the sides of the north, where Lucifer says, I will ascend above the stars of heaven. I will have my place in Mount Zion or in the great congregation, in the sides of the north. What do you uh, know? What revelation is there to your understanding? Why this desire for the sides of the north? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I can say that scholars much more learned than I have written a lot about that. I know that Dr. Michael Heiser has written a lot about that. I know Derek Gilbert, the host of Skywatch Television, who's a brainiac genius. He's a dear friend of mine, but he is amazing. He's written several books about that. So just as a quick, quick aside, and as a great question, I will answer it like this. The North, throughout the Bible, is always equated with where evil will come from and where Satan rules. Now, let me just give you a quick understanding, you and your audience a quick understanding of this. Sometimes it's connected to Mount Hermon in the north of Israel, but it's, more, it's even more directly connected in Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel receives this, this prophecy of the return of Israel in the last days. Then you move to Ezekiel 38, and shock and horror that after Israel returns, in the very last days, there will be a coalition of certain nations that will begin to align themselves to come against the returned Israel. Well, brother, we're watching that happen right before our eyes, because when you look at those tribal names, they all line up with the, with the, the modern-day nations of Russia and Turkey and Iran and Syria, the whole Middle East, parts of northern Africa. I mean, it's the Muslim nations. And, and, and there they are. And people say, well, Russia is not a Muslim nation. Excuse me. The second largest religion in Russia is Islam, and it is an officially recognized religion of the Russian state and has been forever. Um, it's highly Muslim. It may not be an Islamic country, but this is why Russia made a compact with Iran back in the 1990s because that's why they've always been so close, because they said we will give you nuclear technology if you will act as our buffer against Islamic terrorism since we're so closely connected to the Islamic religion. A lot of people don't know this. So when you look at Ezekiel 38, you see all of these nations, and then Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39 say, and when they attack Jerusalem, the attack will come from the north. Well, if you take Jerusalem and draw a straight line to the North Pole, Jerusalem to the North Pole, that straight line intersects right through Ankara, Turkey. What's Ankara, Turkey? It's the capital of Turkey. Well, what's so important about that? Uh, brother, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, was written to the seven churches of where? Asia Minor. The seven churches of Turkey is what we would call it now. Really? Yes, all seven churches were in Turkey. Guess what Jesus said to the church at Pergamum? He says, I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne on earth. He says that twice. Hmm. Pergamum is just a little south and a little uh, west of Ankara. Um, Brother, 
<laughs> now what's happening in Turkey right now? It's falling. It's collapsing under President Recep Erdogan. It's collapsing into the resurrection of the Ottoman Empire, the one of the largest empires the world has ever known, and it was Muslim. <laughs> Does all this make sense of our headlines now? Israel, Jerusalem, United Nations, the Organization of Islamic Council, the OIC, um, Ankara, Turkey, Erdogan, the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Just like God had the resurrection of his nation, Israel, Satan is duplicating it with the resurrection of his empire. Uh, uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, the prophecies of Ezekiel said the attack will come from the north. Well, who's Turkey aligned with now? Well, a lot of the stand nations, they're getting closer and closer to Russia. Russia's aligned with China. China supplying troops to Russia in Syria. Syria is in an irreconcilable civil war. Iran is connected to Russia. Iran's connected to North Korea. We know what North Korea thinks of us. It just everything ties together when you understand these biblical principles. So thanks for asking the question. That's, believe it or not, my brief answer. Oh, it was a great answer, too. And what just happened, uh, if you're up to it, uh, Patricia, uh, my beloved wife, who normally does a 30-minute broadcast after us, has just yielded the time so you're not rushed to get the information out on Paradise. So we'll go an extra 30 minutes or so. Uh, which would give me, uh, she has a question. There's many people listening right now. If we open the lines, they'd have a lot of questions, but I do want you to get to paradise. But uh, she was asking because of your background, where you have been and what you're, you know, you're, you're sharing right now. uh, If you could speak into just a little bit of what your perception is for what's going down South of the border, which I found very interesting that just before all this illegal uh, or this migrant wave is coming up from the South, that we had all these fires up in paradise. I mean, we're, you're going to talk about paradise here real soon. It has been burned yeah. to the ground. So can you bring some connection and then just freely go into your, uh, the unpacking of paradise? Yeah, well, here's the deal. Yeah, thank you. This, these are my opinions, okay? Everybody has political opinions. But I'm going to put some spiritual connections to this. Again, my opinions, because the Bible doesn't say that the caravan from Mexico will come into America in the last days. Okay, but let me just say this. It is demonically driven. It's a demonic agenda. It's a one-world order agenda. I know people hear that now and it's so cliche-ish, and people say, ah, conspiracy theorists. Excuse me, the Bible says in the last days there will be a one-world order. It's called the kingdom of the Antichrist, the beast and the Antichrist that controls it, propped up by some kind of religious system, the false prophet. I mean, it's all right there in the scriptures. Truth will be thrown to the ground. What, what, what's, what do we hear every day now? Fake news, deep state you know, rule of law being trashed and trampled upon in the nation that brought rule and law, rule of law to the planet, the United States of America. We have never been a pristine, beautiful, perfect Christian biblical nation because the whole world has fallen. So every nation has fallen. Every people are fallen. All the kings and rulers are fallen. Unless you're under the blood of Jesus, you're still fallen, but you're redeemed. Um, So the bottom line is there's never been a paradise on earth until Jesus comes. And, of course, in the Garden of Eden there was. But until Jesus comes, that will not be restored. So, But the United States of America, let me just say this. Now that people know my perspective, and I'm not making us out to be this angelic nation, it has been used of God. It was brought about, I believe, partly by, well, all, you know, completely by the hand of God. It was used to stop 
the destruction of World War One. It was used to intervene and stop the destruction of the planet in World War Two. It is the nation which gives more benevolence to all the nations of the world. We disseminate more gospel literature, more missionaries, more uh, uh, feeding of the hungry, uh, uh, um, devastation, aid to devastated countries, disaster relief than any nation of the world and any nation of the world in history. We do all of that. We are the most powerful nation. We are not a superpower. We are a hyperpower. It would take the next three superpowers combined to even come close to equaling the overall military might that we have by the hand and grace of God. Can you imagine that kind of military might in the hands of the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or, or, or Turkey? No, God put it in our hands because we're perfect. No, but we don't use it to go out to destroy the world and to conquer the world. Every other nation would if they had our power. We don't. Now, we've used it to defend ourselves. We've used it to interdict and intervene in world wars. Yes, horrible things have been the result of it. Yes, but we're not an empire-building nation, we, uh, but, but, but we intervene. Now, that nation, the wealthiest, most powerful nation, the same nation that helped Israel to become restored in the land, the same nation that handed Jerusalem back to Israel as the rightful capital, the nation that is the largest Christian nation the planet has ever seen to date, the nation, the only nation in the world where our founding documents are still studied and revered by other nations of the world. Why? Because they were founded upon, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And out of that, this most powerful killer nation that the world has ever seen. I say secular because we're not a theocracy. We operate under constitution and rule of law, but it's all grounded in the biblical truth of there is a creator in heaven. He is the God of the Bible. He's not Allah. He's not Buddha. He's not the teachers of the Hindu Vedas. He's not. He is God of the Bible, Yahweh, and we set our nation upon that foundation. And the evidence to the world is we're the strongest, most powerful nation the world has ever seen. We're the richest nation. And so what the one world order needs, brother, is for us to go away, for our culture to crumble, for our borders to crumble, for our heritage to crumble, for Christianity among us to crumble. Our First Amendment rights need to go away. Our Second Amendment rights need to go away. They stand in the way of protecting the rest of us. All of that needs to go away. And they couldn't. They've been trying since our inception 240 years ago to do this. And the powers of the world, which are backed by Satan himself, could not do it. So they introduced about 100 years ago this whole teaching. We've been teaching generations now that there is no God. We come from monkeys. There is no eternal uh, accountability. Out of that grew Roe v. Wade, 60 million children killed because there's no God. Out of that grew the whole homosexual radical movement, gay marriage agenda, but Supreme Court rulings, gender swapping, telling little girls they can shower with the little boys in school. All of that came from this monkey agenda of who we are, which was born from the throne of Satan in an attempt to flush our culture down the toilet. 
And now the biggest thing is the opening of our borders and the infiltration of our nation by people who hate us. By the way, I wrote a 30-page chapter for a book called I Predict by Defender Publishing, Tom Horn. Twenty other authors were a part of it, or 12 other authors, excuse me. My chapter was talking about globalism and nationalism. And I will just say to your audience, because it goes to your question, God is the inventor of nations. He's the inventor of borders. It all started at the Tower of Babel, said he separated them to nations, and he set their borders. And then it goes on to talk about how Israel's borders have to be protected. Now, they can, they can participate with nations around the world. They can form compacts and alliances and peace treaties. No problem with that. You can do trade with nations of the world, but you are not to become a globalist nation because, Satan, because Jesus knew, God knew, that Satan would inhabit that because Satan would try to rule the earth through a globalist institution. So God says, do not do that. Do not do that. But then, get this, Pastor, God also told Israel when they were turning their back on him, he said, one of my judgments I'm going to bring against you now, and I've got all this quoted in that chapter. He says, I'm going to make your borders porous. I'm going to open your borders, and your enemies will come through your borders, and they will inhabit your land. They will attack you from within, and they will carry you off into captivity. God told his own people that, that one of the judgments against a rebellious nation is the collapse of their borders. Look at the borders of Europe. Look what's happening there. One of the birthplaces and cradle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, I said Europe. Remember Rome? <laughs> Greece? Yeah, yeah, Europe. Uh, the Roman Empire, the birthplace of the gospel. And it's all crumbling and it's becoming Islamic, and the borders are collapsing. It's a judgment from God. So now we see this. And there's a man in office now by the name of Donald Trump. I do not think he's an angel from heaven. I do not think he's a perfect man, nor is he America's Messiah. But for some reason, God is using him. He's using him to hold back the evil and to expose the swamp and to expose to the world what's really happening. He's exposing the fake news. He's exposing the deep state. He's exposing the leftist agenda of collapsing our borders, collapsing our culture, destroying our children, drugs, sex, um, the whole bit, evolution teaching. And Trump, Trump is being used. And I don't know how much longer it's going to last. God may just be doing it to, showing, to show us why judgment has to come upon us. Or he may be using it to turn the hearts of his people back to him so that we could avoid the coming, uh, the, 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 the outfalling of the coming judgment. Um, I don't know what God's up to except he's doing it. God is doing this. Donald Trump doesn't have the power to do what he's doing. He didn't have the power to win that election. He walked through seven, a field of 17 candidates, most of them the deep state. He walked through the Clinton machine, the Obama machine, the Bush machine, and he was never even served on a PTA. He's never even been the dog catcher of a city, but now he's the most powerful man the planet has ever seen. He's the president of the most powerful kingdom the planet has ever seen. God is behind this, brother. So this caravan, it's a part of the globalist agenda. It's a part of the satanic agenda, and about half of our nation has swallowed it. About half of our nation are socialist, liberal, out of their minds. They're suffering a delusion and a derangement of mind that Paul prophesied in Romans chapter 1, connected to all the things that Paul said would happen and why it would happen. It's happening to us right now, and for whatever reason, 
God's using Donald Trump to show us what's going to happen. Because if Donald Trump goes out of office, or a man like him goes out of office, or the thinking like he has goes out of office, the, the, the leftists will seize control again, and they're already telling us what they're going to do. We saw it in the Kavanaugh hearings. They said there, nope, if you're accused, you're guilty. You, there, you, you, no, no, if a woman says it, that's it. You're guilty. You're, you're done. It doesn't matter what you say. You just need to step down. I mean, I kind of oversimplified it, but that's what they said. And the leftists are now saying, no, we've got to open our borders. We've got to let them in. You're racist if you don't. You're mean if you don't. You're, you're evil if you don't. Um, brother, we've got an invasion from the South. I mean, tens of thousands. They're just going to crash through the walls, break our laws, come in and steal our resources. Now, not every one of them will do it, but a bunch of them will. A bunch of them, our own three-letter agencies have already identified. 500 or more of them are, are abject, c- convicted, uh, known criminals and terrorists. They're hiding behind the women and children. Just a couple of days ago, when this 1,000 or so started trying to crash through the walls, 50 got through. They caught them. They, they, they're turning them back to Mexico. Mexico's going to take them. But they tear-gassed the crowd to turn them back. And what did those men do? They shoved the women and children to the front of the line to take the brunt of the tear gas. Brother, who does that? Um, Islamists, they do it. Terrorists, they do it. That's what they did at the border just two days ago. Who would do that, brother? Would you do that to your wife and kids? No. Would I? Never. I would get in front of the line. I would put my wife and kids behind me if tear gas was being shot. Not these guys. They shoved them to the front of the line, the women and the children. Brother, what we're looking at is demonic. The nations are behind it. I think the United Nations may be behind it. George Soros and those kind may be behind it. I'm not accusing him. I have no evidence of it. But I smell this rat. I know that Satan is behind it, and it is can rule this world. The United States, as we know it, has to go away. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. It reminds me uh, many years ago, probably about 27 years ago, having a little mini vision of the borders of the United States when none of this was happening. I knew none of this, Pastor Carl. And I saw our military surrounding our country to protect us from invaders from outside, and yet the Lord took me into the very center of our nation, into a, a mega church, and he showed me that while we were being protected from that which is coming in, we were dying and decaying from within because of our yes. sin. And I'm looking at our yes. country and all the different going on. Uh, it's an amazing time, but let's get back now to paradise. <laughs> let's okay. go to paradise, and let's unpack that for just a little bit. Okay, let's do. This is, I think your audience will find this fascinating. And again, let me just say, I'm not trying to sell a book. Listen, I am not a book salesman. I, I write books because I've been a pastor for 32 years. Prior to that, I was a cop and a criminal investigator for 10 years. So I've had 40 years of good life experience, and God's shown me a lot of things. I've become a prolific researcher, and so I had to, and I preach and teach, so I had to get it out of my head and put it in writing. That's the only reason I write these books. But then, Whenever I go places, I don't stand at my table and sell books. I get other people to do that. I'm not a book salesman. So even when I come on interviews, I enjoy, I appreciate that you've mentioned my book only because the reason I wrote it was to get this information into the hands of preachers and the people. I, my wife and I give away thousands and thousands of dollars worth of books every time they come out. Uh, we, we, we don't make any money. <laughs> we make a little bit, but it goes right back into writing more books and me traveling all over and paying my own expenses. So I'm just saying that 
to say to your audience, please know that everything we're talking about today that Pastor Vincent has been so gracious to allow me to speak about, um, there are dozens more topics like this in this book. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here today, Pastor Vincent. So I'm, I'm begging your folks, get this book, Gods of Ground Zero, get the book, uh, Gods and Thrones, and then then 2019 – I've got two more books coming out. One of them is the third of this trilogy, if you will, that keeps unpacking all of this stuff of the message of God's Word. Now, now that I've said that so that your audience knows that my heart is just to get everything God's showing me into a form that I can put in the hands of people, um, I, I will say this. Paradise. This is a fascinating study, and it further gives emphasis and credence to everything I've been saying. Here's the deal. When when time we get to the New Testament, there is a word in English translations called paradise. It's used three times. Now, I'll get to all three of those in just a moment, and I'm not going to take them in order for a, for a specific reason. The word paradise, in Greek it's paradisios, but it has a Hebrew equivalent, and every Hebrew dictionary says this, Every Greek dictionary says this. In fact, I, I will read one of them to you just a moment here. But the Hebrew equivalent for paradise, the Hebrew word, it, actually it's a, a, a conjunction of two words, gan eden, gan eden. Gan, G-A-N, happens to be the Hebrew word for garden. Eden happens to be the Hebrew word for what we call Eden. <laughs> the word paradise means Garden of Eden. Brother, I'm telling you, this is throughout the Bible, the whole message of Ground Zero, Garden of Eden. This is what the Bible is about. But we've turned it into a children's story with a talking snake, and people laugh at it, and non-Christians call us you know, fairy tale believers. But it's there. It's a metaphor for a purpose. But anyway, back to the paradise. All right. Now, there is a fourth time the word is used, but it's not translated paradise because it is a Hebrew idiom, and that is the bosom of Abraham. Luke chapter 16, where Jesus tells the, the account of, and I don't think it's a parable, I think he's telling a real account of the rich man and Lazarus. And he says the, the rich man died and went to hell, went to, went to prison, went to holding place. He knows the great white throne of judgments on the way. But then Lazarus, he died and went to the bosom of Abraham. Well, that is a synonym for paradise, and the Hebrew dictionaries say that. So he died and went to where? The Garden of Eden. Uh, but Because that's the synonym for Gan Eden. And paradisios is the Hebrew equivalent, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Gan Eden. Now, by the way, not only do all the Hebrew and Greek dictionaries say this. Let me just read one example, and then I want to move on with some other proof of this. Thayer's Greek lexicon, the word paradisios. Here's the definition. Universally, it means a garden or a pleasure ground, a grove or a park. And then it goes on to say that delightful region the Garden of Eden, in which our first parents dwelt before the fall. That's Thayer's Greek lexicon for the definition of paradisios. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. Gan Eden. All right. Bosom of Abraham means the Garden of Eden. So what Jesus said to his Hebrew audience, they all understood. 
He said the rich man died and went to hell, to Sheol, to the realm of the dead, the holding place, uh, to Hades, the, the realm of the dead, the holding place, those that are outside of Christ. What are they holding for? Well, Revelation 20 tells us, and death and hell gave up the dead that were in them, and they were brought before the throne and shown that their names were not in the book of life because they had refused Jesus Christ. That's where the rich man was. Well, where was Lazarus? Well, he was in Gone Eden. What? The Garden of Eden? Yes. Well, how can that be? We thought the Garden of Eden was destroyed. Nope, Bible doesn't say it was destroyed. Genesis 3, the same passage about the Garden of Eden, it ends with the words, and I'm going to paraphrase, don't have it right in front of me, but it ends with the words that God then sealed off the garden. He cast the man and the woman out. He cast Satan out. Ezekiel 28 tells us that. And then he sealed it and guarded it with four cherubim, four more of these living creatures, powerful creatures from the throne of God. And he dropped the veil. He made it in another dimension. He separated it from the fallen earthly dimension. How do we know that? book of Hebrews tells us. The book of Hebrews says that everything that's in Jerusalem, everything that's on the Temple Mount, the temple and everything in it, is just a copy of what lies behind the veil. It's a copy of what's really in Heaven, which is also another synonym for paradise, which is the word for the Garden of Eden. The book of Hebrews tells us behind the curtain, behind the veil, is the Garden of Eden. The temple is representative of our fellowship with God, but that fellowship can only come by taking the blood. The great high has to go behind the veil. Well, who's our great high priest? Well, it's Jesus. But the great high priest of the biblical days represented the coming Christ. What happened at Jesus' crucifixion? The veil was rent from top to bottom at an earthquake, symbolizing the fact that through Jesus Christ and his blood, our real great high priest, the veil is now open. Now in our spirit, we can sense, we can see in our spiritual eye where the Garden of Eden is and what's going to happen to our lives. But it also is a promise that that is coming. Now, let's take the three uses of the garden. Let's take the three uses of paradise. Well, we go to the first use in uh, the book of Corinthians. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians. I think it's chapter 12. I, I may be mistaken. I don't, I don't have all this before me. I'm just sitting in my studio here. But where Paul says, I know a man who was caught up to heaven, to the third heaven. And then it says, comma, he was caught up to paradise. All right, so that means it's the same thing. Heaven, third heaven means the abode of God, okay, what you and I call. Well, he died and went to heaven. Well, what are we talking about? Well, in the Hebrew mind, it would be the third heaven. What does that mean? The place where God lives. Well, what did, what did Paul also say it was synonymous with? Paradise. He said, I know a man. He's talking about himself. He was caught up before John, 30 years before John received the revelation, Paul was caught up. And he was shown the same end-time things. Paul was shown the Antichrist. He was shown the rapture. He was shown about the, the trumpets, the last trumpet, the uh, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the blowing of the last trumpet. He was shown the return of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, with what body shall they come? How shall they come when Jesus comes? This is how it will happen. He was shown all of that. Paul says, I know a man, he's talking of himself, that was caught up to paradise. And he said he was shown things inexpressible. Later, Paul, or earlier, Paul was talking about that. He says, let me tell you, he says, your mind cannot conceive. Your eye has never seen. Your ear has never heard. What lies ahead for those that know the Lord? Why did he say that? Because he had seen it. He had been taken behind the veil. 
John was taken behind the veil to the throne room of God and given the book of Revelation. Paul was taken behind the veil. Well, how come they could go? Because the blood of Jesus had been spilt in Paul's day and in John's day. The veil was opened by special invitation. They were allowed to come, and God gave them revelations of what was going to come. Now, Paul said, I know a man, me. I was caught up to the Garden of Eden. That word paradise is synonymous with Gan Eden. By the way, I meant to tell your audience, um, I said that I was going to prove that further than the commentaries. I've got a dear friend of mine who's born and raised in Israel. He went through all the rabbinical training schools to be a rabbi. He found Jesus Christ in his, late, in his uh, early 40s. He's now a messianic rabbi to the world. He's all over the world. And I bounced this stuff off of him, and he said, when I wrote my book, Gods of Ground Zero, I wanted to make sure I was correct. Even though Thayer's Greek Dictionary and Strong's Concords, they all say this, but I just couldn't believe it when I found this. And so I went to my friend, and I said, Brother, the word paradise, is it equivalent to Gan Eden? And he said, Oh, my gosh, Carl. He said, you've just, you've just blown my head up. He said, yes, it is equivalent, but the reason I'm so shocked is because we use that in our modern Hebrew language right now. When we talk about paradise or going to heaven, we say, gone Eden. But he said, I've never thought of it before like that. He says, it's like, you, it's like we use the word shampoo in English, and we don't even realize we're using a, a French word. It, but we've made it such an English thought in our head that it never crosses our mind what it really means. He says, God, Eden, you're right. That's the word for heaven, for paradise. He says, I've never thought of that before. He said, I see it right here in my Bible. I'm looking at it in the Hebrew. He says, but it's never really hit me the power of that. He says, you're absolutely right. He says, you've got to put that in your book. So I have. So anyway... So Paul says to God, now what happened to Paul after that? Well, what does he say from there forward? He tells the church, you know what? I'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. <laughs> he says that two or three times in different ways in the scriptures. Why? Because he went to the Garden of Eden, Pastor. He saw it. He went behind the veil. He said, oh, my gosh, your mind can't conceive. Your eye has never seen. Your, your ears have never heard. And what he means by that, the music the singing, the worship, the colors, the smells, the sights, the creatures. Think of all the 25 million species of life in this fallen creation. Think what's behind the veil, brother, in the perfect creation. Think of all the races and cultures of humanity in a fallen world. Think what's behind the veil, brother. And think what's behind the veil of the divine council and our brothers and sisters in the Lord, Elohim, that God created before he ever created the earth. It's all behind the veil in the Garden of Eden, and it will all be restored, and we will all rule and reign with them all. It's all there. That's why Paul said, I'd just rather leave this world. This world's not my home. I'm ready to give up this tent and get in my new tent. I, I wish that I was absent from the body and present with the Lord. I have been to the Garden of Eden. I have seen it. It's there. It's real. It's physical. That's why he said, I don't know. He said, this man was caught up. He says, don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. All I know is I was caught up. In other words, what he meant was I was there and I was physical. But how could I be physical and be there when I just came from the earth realm, I stepped through a portal, if you will, into another dimension, 
But he said, I can't explain it. All I know is I was equipped to live there for a little bit while God showed me these things. But I didn't want to come back. Now I would rather be with the Lord and absent from this earthly body. Now, I've paraphrased a lot, but that's what Paul said. It's all right there in the scriptures. Now, that's one of the times paradise is used. Let me tell you another time paradise is used. Revelation 2, verse 7. Out of the mouth of Jesus, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, And to he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, is in paradise. Not will be, not used to be, not will be replanted. It is there now, Jesus said. And if you will be an overcomer, which means you believe in him, you will get to eat from that. And by the way, Jesus is the tree of life. No, 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 one, there's, no one comes to life, eternal life, but through Jesus Christ. We know that through the scriptures. So it's all a metaphor for his own presence, for his own life-giving. He is the life. He is the light. He is the holder of all things together, Colossians chapter 1. He says, I'll give you the right to eat of that. It's all in paradise. All right, now he says that, the second use of paradise. And what do we find by the time we get to the end of Revelation? The tree of life, Revelation 22. It says, I saw the throne of God and of the Lamb, and I saw the river of life flowing from the throne, and the tree of life was there. What is it? It's, it's the Garden of Eden. As I said, most English translations have as the subtitle for Revelation 22, the restoring of Eden. I mean, it's right before our eyes, brother. So there's the second use of the word paradise. Now, your audience who are Bible students already know the third use. They're thinking, oh, my gosh, now I get it. Here we go, brother. Jesus on the cross. One thief looks at him and mocks him. The other thief rebukes the mocker and then turns to Jesus and says, Lord. Now, if that in Greek... That word there is probably curios, um, and it means, you know, Lord, uh, God or king or something like that. But in the Hebrew edition, it would be translated as Adonai or as Yahweh. What that thief called him was, I know you're God in the flesh. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him, and I always tell people, I think he smiled. The Bible doesn't say that, but I think Jesus smiled through the blood and everything. He looked at him and he said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in the Garden of Eden. That's what he said. And the guy understood it. You will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in Gan Eden. And I always add the word when I'm teaching this to be comical. And I said, then he pointed, uh, then he pointed his head towards the temple, and he says, by the way, it's just behind the veil right over there, <laughs> because that's what Hebrews says. Now, Jesus didn't say those words on the cross, but he did say, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what the English says. In the Hebrew, it says, today you will be with me in the Garden of Eden. Does all this make much more sense now, Pastor? Oh, I, I'm absolutely loving it, and I know what people are thinking, and what I'm doing is in kind of internalizing this, and I don't want to break any laws anywhere, 
But I kind of get this, this sense that a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And then we know that Jesus, during the Feast of Tabernacles, said um, that there will be a river flowing out of your belly, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a crystal clear river in the book of Revelation. And this is all within paradise. And I'm just wondering, is that paradise in some way transferred into our born-again spirit somehow? The connection yes. is there because we're yes. all the children yes. of Eden, right? Yes, we are. In yes. fact, the Bible says that when we are saved, that we are seated at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. So it's like we're two places at once. Now, I know in quantum physics, it's, it's, we know that that's a reality with electrons and subatomic particles can be two places at once, and, all that, and that's deep, and I'm going to deal with that in my next book. But, and I'm not suggesting that there's another version of Carl seated at the throne of God. The Bible doesn't really say that, but what it says is just what you said, uh, that, number one, um, the Holy Spirit is in us. Ephesians 1 says that Holy Spirit marks us and seals us. Paul said... When he said, your mind is not conceived, your eyes never seen, your, spirit, your, your, your ear is never heard. But then he goes on to say, but the Spirit of God reveals this to us. See, that's the next verse right behind that. So what's he saying? He's saying just what you said. That that's why, that's why the scriptures say that we're seated within Jesus Christ in the heavenlies once we're saved. What does that mean? We're the children of Eden. We, we, we're, our divine nature will be restored to us, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1. Our divine nature will be restored. Um, which means, what does that mean? We'll be like Adam and Eve. We'll, we'll never die. Re- Revelation 21 says that. No more death, no more pain, no more crying. The old order of things is, is, is gone. The new is here. It, it, paradise, Adam and Eve, they were not going to die until they just spit in God's face and followed the guardian cherub who had turned black in his heart. Um, uh, but now that we've been through this testing ground, now that we've been through this boot camp, now that we're under the blood of Jesus, we get it. We finally get it. We see how, how deep and dark evil can go. We don't want that anymore. Our nature is restored. But in the meantime, while we're here as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, you're right, brother. The Holy Spirit speaks to our mind and our heart, and we get what I call glimpses of glory from time to time. It's almost like we're there. Brother, I can tell you, sometimes I feel like I can see it in my spirit. You know, I feel like I can, and I long for it. I'm like Paul sometimes. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I love this life. I don't have a death wish. I'm not going to commit suicide, Lord. Don't worry about it. But I'd rather be with you. I mean, even so, Lord Jesus, come. (laughs) Does that make sense? It certainly does, and I'm here in your heart, and I think that's resonating in the heart of a lot of people. You know, in the last days um, in the Bible, there's this big controversy about people being caught away, and I can understand how people, you know, with what's coming down the pike uh, in this one-world government that you spoke about lightly, that many people would have a desire just to go be with the Lord, but there's a purpose for a a remnant to be here, to go through these days for some purpose. Can you speak into that? Yeah, I can. Yeah, uh, listen, I know that this matter of eschatology is awfully uh, caustic and explosive with people, and it shouldn't be. I, I had this discussion with a man in my church last night, and when we finished, he said, Carl, thank you for your spirit. Thank you. This is why I'm in this church. Well, what's my spirit? Okay, I believe that I see what you're just saying. I think, well, we'll be here during a lot of what the Bible calls the time of tribulation. Now, there's a difference between tribulation and the wrath of God being poured out. 
But Jesus said the last days before he comes will be just like the days of Noah. He says that in Luke 17. Just like the days of Lot. He says that in Luke 17. And he literally uses the words just like. Well, when we look at the days of Noah and days of Lot, Noah and his family, they lived on this earth in the worst times of tribulation the earth had ever seen. That's what the Bible says. And God didn't take them out. The only time God took them out was when he brought his wrath and killed everything that had breath. But then he lifted up the family of Noah in the ark above the death waters, the the destruction above God's wrath. He lifted them up and he spared them. He raptured them out. But prior to that, he left them there. Why? To be a testimony. He was building a ship in his backyard. <laughs> he was, And everybody called him crazy. And they persecuted him. But that was his gospel. That was his Bible. That was his scripture he was writing. He was building it right before the eyes of the people. He was an ambassador for the kingdom of God all through the time of the greatest tribulation the planet had ever seen. But when God brought his wrath, he said, "Uh uh-uh, my people have not been appointed under wrath. I'm going to lift them up and take them out. Same with Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. Take Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of, of the world in the last days. I can do that because Jesus does it about four or five times in the New Testament. He talks about how the last days is comparable to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he even says in Luke 17, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like it was in the days of Lot. Well, where did Lot live? In Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what happened with Lot and his family? They lived, if you take that microcosm of Sodom and Gomorrah, these two, it's like Dallas-Fort Worth. It's two big cities, very, very fleshly, very secular, very godless, and I'm not condemning Dallas-Fort Worth, I'm just saying saying that Sodom and Gomorrah was just these two connecting sister cities steeped in paganism, steeped in sexual perversion of all manner. We, We read about it in the scriptures. Steeped in thievery, more than likely witchcraft, sorcery, which is tied directly to drug abuse, substance abuse. Steeped in all of that. But Lot and his wife were not taken out of it till God poured out his wrath. He brought fire from heaven. But what did he do? He sent his angels to take them out. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24? He says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will send his angels from the four corners of the earth to gather his elect in the last days. Who are the elect of God? Those that are under the blood of Jesus. People say, well, that's the Jews. Well, but Jesus doesn't say that. Bible doesn't say that. It says elect, the saints. Well, who are the saints and the elect at the end of the earth? Who are they? You can only be a saint, a separated one. You can only be one of God's elect if you're under the blood of Jesus. So we can say Christians, Jew or Gentile. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So, you know, I think you're right, brother. I mean, Jesus says it. For the first 400 years of the church's history, the eschatology of the church, And even people who are staunch uh, pre-trib teachers have written to this. I I can quote you, page 112 and 113, out of a book called Wrath and Glory, written by Dr. David Reagan, one of the biggest, he's a lion of, I forgot what it's called, Lamb and Lion Ministries TV. He is one of the biggest pre-trib proponents in the world. But he says in his book, page 112 and 113, Wrath and Glory, he says for the first, he says 300 years, I think it's more like 400, but for the first 300 years, the 
only systematic theology of the early church was historic premillennialism. Well, what does that teach? It teaches that the church will go through the tribulation, but will be protected in the midst of it, like Noah, like Lot. And at the end of it, before God pours out his wrath, he raptures out his children. So now, I was talking to somebody about that last night, trying to help them because they were confused. And I said, but here's what I always say. I could be wrong. I'm only taking what Jesus said. He said, go look at Noah. Go look at Lot. I've done that. I don't see them being taken out of the most horrendous times of the world. They were left in it as witnesses. But God protected them. He took care of them because they were being faithful witnesses. But before he poured out his wrath, he took them out. And the Bible says in the last days that the trumpet will sound and we will be changed and we will be caught up with him in the clouds. We have not been appointed to suffer wrath because the wrath of God is coming. And Revelation 6 says, and in that, in that sixth seal was opened and the wrath came, the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And the people hid themselves in mountains and caves. Those are lost people. But, but, but God's people are gone. They're hiding because now the, the scroll has been peeled back. The veil has been lifted, and the whole world sees the face of God. They see, how can the whole world see the face of God? People say, well, the Internet, cell phones. No, we don't need Internet and cell phones. He's behind another dimension. When he opens the scroll, the Bible says in Revelation and through the Old Testament that in the last days the sky will be rolled back like a scroll. The stars will be gone. Everything. It'll be opened up. And in Revelation 6, it says, And the people saw the face of God, the whole world, and they hid themselves and said, Oh, my God, the, the, the wrath of the Lamb is here. Let the rocks fall on us, kill us, destroy us, so we don't fall into his hands. We are now looking at his face in the heavens. The whole world sees him. That's what the Bible says, brother. Amen. So, Pastor Carl. Uh, forgive me for the interruption. We're down to 90 yeah. seconds here, and I need to just uh, let our listeners know uh, that we are going to do everything we can to get that book out. I've never heard so much agreement. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time with you on the air. I had people actually were calling in. They wanted to ask questions. I have a number of other questions, so I hope Thank that you will join me once again on another interview. And I, and I also want to live in Ark. In Saw. That's why we live yeah. here. Anyways, yeah. that's my little tidbit. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm going to be up in Missouri in just a couple of days doing Skywatch TV and Jim Baker show. Listen, have me back on your show. We, If you want to, we can even open the phone lines and I'll answer questions live. Whatever you want to I do, but it. I'd be glad to come back on your show. I'll contact you in a little bit. Carl Gallup's the author of a book, Gods of Ground Zero. It's been a pleasure being with you, sir. And stay Bye safe on. and... May God just continue to bless you and your family. We'll talk to you again real soon. Have a Jesus-filled day. Thanks. Amen. Thank you. All right. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. What a great interview. I'm sorry I didn't get to the calls um, to let you ask your questions, but we'll do it again. We'll make sure that we get that done. Uh, Carl Gallup's wrote a book called It Sounds Like Something That Will Educate and uh, Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Vincent Xavier and Patricia Joy Xavier. She gave her time today. We'll get her back on the air probably Thursday. Until we meet again, God bless each one of you and shalom.